So we continue with the ministry of God's Word. Turn with me to the old book, Exodus, and we are in chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be taking up where we left off, chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of the chapter. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? And he has, then he said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock. So he said to his daughters, And where is he? Why is it that you have left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. Then Moses was content to live with the man, and he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses. And she bore him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. O Lord our God, as we have continued in our worship, as we come now to hear your word preached by your appointment, Father, we pray that you would bless that which you have appointed, that which we seek to undertake in obedience. Lord, give us ready and willing hearts, ears to hear, a heart of understanding, that by your Spirit that the word will go forth with clarity and come upon our hearts and accomplish all your holy will within your people. Lord, may the gospel of Christ even convict those who are perishing and convert them by your Spirit and bring them into union with Christ that they might rejoice with the assembly of the saints both here and in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we begin this morning, we want to remember that the human author of this book of Exodus is Moses. You might remember, or maybe you don't know, the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. He was the human author who wrote them down. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Holy Spirit moved Moses along to record these things. And, of course, there's events that took place hundreds of years before Moses existed, and then the very events that he will be a part of. Now, the events in this chapter, and indeed in this book, were written later at some time by Moses, and God directed Moses 
to put down a faithful record, an account of all these things. And dude, this very, indeed, this very activity, these first events in Moses' adult life, Moses was moved along by the Spirit to record them. But they don't reflect well on Moses, do they? This is one of the evidences that the Scripture is inspired. If you and I were writing a book, a great story of, of mighty heroes that we would want people to, uh, to magnify and exalt, we'd leave out the negative parts. We'd leave out their weaknesses. And yet we, we find here with Moses a failure, a murder. You see that with David. You might remember when we were in John just so frequently that the first witness that John records of the resurrected Christ was a woman. And, and if John is trying to write a record to compel people to believe on the evidence of witnesses, the reality of the resurrection, he wouldn't start with a woman and Mary Magdalene of all. But that's what the scripture does. We see in here the integrity, uh, the faithfulness, the truthfulness of God's word that it is without error, and it is all written by inspiration for our instruction. And so we hear Moses talk about these early events. Moses is one of the heroes of the faith. He's celebrated in the faith chapter, Hebrews 11. But like Moses, many of us, Moses did not begin well. Some of you can identify with that. He had not yet met with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses' worldview, that is, uh, the way that he thinks about it, is based on the education he received in Egypt. Uh, Egypt was filled with many gods. He receives this instruction from the scholars of Egypt. Perhaps it was stressed in that culture that might makes right. And strength and force will prevail. That's really kind of the, the ethos of the nation of Egypt. That's how they treated others. Moses indeed has much to learn about the God of his fathers, the God of the covenant. He's not ignorant, though. And in time, Joseph, uh, Moses will le- le- uh, learn. But Moses is recording this, but God is writing through Moses. Moses is part of the story. But the story is not about Moses. The Moses is about God, the God of grace, the God of the gospel, the God who comes to redeem sinners, even as Moses is. That's what the story is about. So Moses even tells of his own sin. As we pick up the story, we encounter Moses is a 40-year-old man. Notice how Moses, uh, we were, had you know, him as a, a child. We're told in verse 10, he's a child. He uh, then was brought to Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 11, now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. How old is he? I I, I said he's 40. How do we know that? Acts 7, Stephen's sermon before the Sanhedrin, he says that in verse 23. Now here's a man, he's well educated. He has great wealth at his disposal. He lives in the royal residence of the king of Egypt. And as Hebrew 11 said, at this time he's enjoying the pleasures of sin. Verses 25, 26. Until one day, Moses goes for a walk among the Hebrews. Moses chose to identify with God's covenant people, the Israelites. And there he learns a critical lesson. Notice how he records it. He went out to his brethren, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Moses is choosing to identify with his fellow Israelites. We're going to look at three main headings from the text. Moses looked and acted. 
and then we're going to look at God's mercy and provision, and then we're going to look at how God looked, and we can say, and acted. What does God do? That action really comes through the rest of the book. So we begin with, Moses looked and acted. In those days, what days is this? It's when Moses grew up. It's very nonspecific. He's grown up sometime when he's 40 years old. Moses is a mindful of his countrymen. We must remember that after Pharaoh's daughter discovered Moses in, in an ark that his mother had made of floating along the riverside in the reeds, that she had responded favorably to Moses' sister who was there at the time of the discovery. And she said, should I go and fetch a, a nurse for the child from amongst the Hebrew women? And Pharaoh's daughter said yes. And she went and fetched the baby's own mother. That a wonderful turn of events, the baby's own mother. So Moses goes back to his father's home. He goes in back into his mother's arms. It's a marvelous turn of events. God is at work, as we so often remember, above it all, in it all, and through it all. And without a doubt, she taught Moses who he was, who his people were, what their history were, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of God's faithfulness, of the covenant that God made with, with uh, Abraham and renewed with Isaac and with Jacob. This is his people. This is his history. No doubt she would have taught him of Joseph, who God set down at, at the hands of his brother because of the wickedness in their heart, and yet God used Joseph to be there to deliver all that region, but particularly Abraham's descendants from a great famine. No doubt that Moses grew up learning all these things. And so he knows. And so when he's 40 years old, he decides to go out and visit his brethren. He, he leaves Pharaoh's household. He goes out to where the Hebrews are laboring, where the, the slave masters, the foremen, are putting the whip to their back and demanding great labor of them. Moses goes out, and we're told, and Moses looked. What did Moses see? Children, just think about that. He's gone out to see other Hebrews, and they're slaves. Every day they get up, as they're told to, they're ordered about, they have tasks that are given to them, and if they're not working diligently, they would be beaten. It's hot. It's a, it's a very hot climate. It's a very dry climate, and they have men driving them forward day by day, cruel taskmasters set over them. And as Moses looks on this scene, he sees one foreman in particularly beating a Hebrew slave. He is striking him. And Moses identifies with that Hebrew slave. This is one of his brethren. He wouldn't have known the man, but he would recognize that he was a fellow countryman. Uh, like he, they descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's moved. And so Moses took action to start the harsh treatment. And in verse 12, we're told, so he looked this way. And he looked that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So whatever Moses had at hand, or maybe he picked up some implement of, uh, for construction, and he strikes this Egyptian, a blow that kills him. He, he has murdered the Egyptian foreman. Now there's a dead body, and so what's in abundance? Sand. And he buries this man who is struck. This is how Stephen speaks of it in his sermon. Seeing one of them was suffering wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Moses was very careful. He looked around and not seeing anyone, he took matters into his own hand. And Moses struck a blow that killed him. 
Children, I just want you to think about this for me, with me for a minute. It's not clear that Moses said, I'm going to murder this Egyptian. He sees the Egyptian striking one of his countrymen, and so he strikes him. But maybe Moses has never struck anything before, and he strikes so hard that the Egyptian dies. In his anger, he struck him. Have you ever been so angry, children, that you've struck someone? Have you ever been angry with your sister or your brother? And they just haul off and punch them. And then all of a sudden they're screaming and they're crying. Perhaps you even drew blood. And your mom or your dad hears about it. We're going to talk about the Sixth Commandment next week. The, one of the ways that we break the Sixth Commandment is anger. Unbridled rage. And here it is in Moses. In unintended, he's murdered a man. Sometimes as children you can strike a brother or a sister and do more harm than you intended. And that's why it's important that we look to Jesus, that he would govern our emotions, that he would help us with our anger and our rage so that we don't harm others. Remember that the very first sin after the fall of Adam and Eve, the very first sin that is recorded in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain the older, Abel the younger. Cain disregarding God, not having a regard for God, not coming to worship God in faith. And Abel, his younger brother, who worships God, and Cain is angry that God has respect for Abel and his offering and not for his own. And so Cain, one day in the field, I believe with intention, takes up something and strikes his brother to death. Cain didn't have to look around to see if there were many people around, but God saw. And God even comes and says that the cry of your brother's blood comes up from the ground before me. Oh, the wretched misery that we bring into the world when we become angry and strike others. So Moses looked at the oppression. No doubt as he came out that day, he's seen oppression. He's seen the burden. He's seen the labor. He's seen the hard labor, the difficult circumstances of his countrymen, and probably felt some justice in striking this Egyptian foreman. He responds in kind. Even you young children know that. If your brother hauls off and punches you, you're inclined just to haul off and punch back, right? I used to be a little boy one time and end up with a full-on brawl with my brother. Always one because he's four years younger than me. It didn't make it right, though. And so here is Moses oppressing. Moses then sought to get rid of the evidence. He hid the man in the sand. We don't have to wonder what Moses was thinking when he did this because the Word of God tells us, again, Stephen in his sermon, chapter 7, verse 25 of Acts, for he, that is Moses, supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. But they did not understand. Moses thinks, I'll deliver my brothers. By a striking blow, I'll deliver them. Moses does not understand. But then we see that Moses looked again. Verse 13, then he went out the second day. The indication is not absolutely clear in the original language that it was the very next day, but another day. We have the first day and then a second day, another day, perhaps right afterwards, but it's not clear and it's not really relevant. But he goes out and then what does he see? Behold, that's a Hebrew phrase like, and lo, the King James would translate it. it was a, it's a word of like, aha, look, and behold, 
What does he see this time? Two Hebrew men were fighting. It's not an Egyptian and a Hebrew this time. It's two of his countrymen. They're fighting. And he said to the one who did wrong. So one clearly is in the wrong. Perhaps he's striking his brother. And he said to him, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, that is the man doing the striking, said to Moses, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. What Moses did is known, at least amongst the Hebrews. He steps in and he's called out. Moses gets a shock. He had looked all around before striking the, engine, the Egyptian, but who else was there? The Hebrew man who was being struck. It would be incredibly wrong on Moses to think, well, he didn't tell anybody. He would have gone and told the Hebrew. No doubt it went throughout the Hebrew camp. That this Egyptian, oh, that son of Pharaoh, which actually is one of us, no matter how he dresses or what he looks like, he came and he murdered an Egyptian to save one of our own. But these two men, at least the one doesn't view it the same way. See, Moses thinks... I'll take matters into my own hands. Stephen makes that very clear that in the, the passage I read, that he thought his Egyptians would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. Now look at that. There's, there's a little foreshadowing, right? Moses will be the one whom God will use to deliver his brethren out from the depression, but it's not going to be the might of Moses' hand. What is the might of one man's hand against the, the nation of Egypt? It's going to take much more than that. But, you know, Moses doesn't understand that yet. Moses has much to learn. So the man who was striking asked Moses a critical question. Who appointed you head and judge over us? Stephen goes on to explain in his sermon, Acts 7:24 and following, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian, for he supposed that his brethren would have understood. Look at the last, we've read that part, but look at the last part. But they did not understand. The Hebrews didn't understand what Moses was thinking, what Moses' intentions were. There was no clear direction of God, no revelation by God. Moses is just acting all on his own. Now Moses knew what he had known, what he had done previously is known, and Moses became afraid. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this matter, isn't it interesting, we, we do things, don't we? Adults, as well as children, we, we think no one's aware and yet, the word goes up. The action is known. And so it is Moses thinks that what he's done is unknown. But Pharaoh heard of this matter. And he sought to kill Moses. This is his adopted grandson. But Pharaoh is upset. This is an injustice. Now, we need to remember something. What Moses did, was it right in God's eyes? No, it was murder. And what was it that God told Noah after the flood? That if a man strikes and kills another man with his own life, he is to pay the penalty. That he is to be put to death. A life for a life. Why? Because all men, including Egyptian foremen, 
are made in the image of God. Now, whether the foreman was in the right beating the Hebrew, as a superior, we could say, no, he wasn't. He was overly heavily handed in his authority, but it did not make it right for Moses to strike him down. So Moses is guilty of murder. And so what happens? Moses fled, verse 15. He fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Can we hide from someone else's face? You children know you can. When you're in trouble, maybe you've been fighting with your brother or sister, and you hear your mother's footsteps coming down the hall. Have you ever sought to run, crawl under the bed, hide in the closet? Right? But we can't hide from before the face of God. Everything is before the face of God. God sees all. And so Moses now is a guilty man. He's on the run. And where did he go? He ran all the way to Midian. Let's just make some application before we go on. When we take matters into our own hands, we can be certain we will make a mess of everything. When we think we know the best way to handle a situation, that we have the right to act, we will make a mess of things. Proverbs 26:17 says, I think about Moses. There's two men, one a superior beating the other, and in another situation, two men quarreling. In Proverbs, Solomon writes, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who grabs a dog by the ears. And if you've got a dog that's causing problems, you grab him by the ear, you know what you should expect? Get bit. You should expect to get bit if you grab a dog by his ears. And that's what the proverb is. If you step into something, it's not your quarrel, it's not your business, you should expect something to happen. You see, God alone is the Lord of providence. And we are best to wait on him. It is best to serve him. And then we need to remember, as God appointed us, to intervene. Now, if two men are fighting, we'll say uh, at a bar, and the police cars pull in, does that police officer or police officer, do they have authority in that situation? Yes. They're the civil magistrate. It's their often in station in life. Just put it into that fight. They have a right to use the force necessary to separate these men to stop harm, to stop property damage. But that's not necessarily ours to do. And, and if we insert ourselves, we should expect consequences. It is the power of the civil magistrate, then, to use the sword to punish evildoers. It is not for us to deliver justice to the wicked. Vigilante justice is just more wickedness. A parent in the home has an office. You ever thought about that, children? Your mom and dad have an office. They hold an office. They're the parent. By what appointment? We just heard about this earlier in our law homily. By God's appointment. God has set them to be your parent. It's not an accident. And they have responsibilities and they have rights. They have authority over you. And so sometimes a mother or father will step in because you're in trouble and stop it. I hope they do. And it's right for them to do so. If we are oppressed by an evil government, then, then what shall we do? Well, we take the matter to the Lord in prayer. That's what we'll see later on in this passage. The children of God, they cry out to God in the oppression that is upon them because they are the people of God. 
And also in our, our former government, you can appeal to lesser magistrates to respond to higher magistrates for their wickedness. But we don't just engage in vigilante justice. So Moses is murdered. Moses has fled. He's in the land of Midian. We'll find out in a minute just where that is. Off he's gone. What's going to happen? We're going to look at now God's mercy and provision. Or we could say God's mercy and grace. Because what is mercy? When we don't receive what we deserve. By God's law, what does Moses deserve? He deserves to be put to death. What is grace? It's when God gives us gifts. He gives us Goodness that we have not earned. It's a gift, unearned, unmerited. And that's what we're going to see. So Moses ends up in Midian. Now, who are these people this, in this region known as the land of Midian? Who are the Midianites? Well, you're right. Remember, Midian was Abraham's son by his third wife, Keturah. And it was the Midian traders who bought Joseph from his brothers and carried him down into Egypt and sold him as a slave to Potiphar. Interesting, these connections, isn't it? Abraham's son, a Midianite, the first one. And so they dwelt in a region east of the Sinai Peninsula. So the Sinai Peninsula is that piece of land. You think about Egypt, Sinai sticks down, and then Israel, the promised land's up here. So it's on the east side of that is where the land of Midian is, the Sinai Peninsula. What mountain do you think is in that Sinai Peninsula? Mount Sinai. We're going there, a few chapters down the road. So this is where Moses is gone. He's gone to that region. He's going to have remarkable things happen there. And then years later, he will bring the people of God out to that same place. So we find Moses here. It is here that the Lord brings Moses in his providence. It is here that Moses will live for the next 40 years. So when we started this portion, verse 11, Moses is 40. When we end the chapter and pick up chapter 3, Moses is going to be 40 more years, 80 years. So just like that, in a few short verses, Moses has gone from his childhood to 40 years to 80 years. Moving right along, chronology. So we find Moses. He's going to learn things in that place that he had not learned in Pharaoh's household. God's going to teach him things in that location that he would never have learned anywhere else. Moses will be in the wilderness. Moses will be learning about leading sheep, something he would not learn about the Egyptians. Remember when Joseph's family comes down? He says, you're not going to live amongst the Egyptians because they find people who keep animals offensive. The idea of shepherding and so forth, that's just, that's, Offensive to them, a matter of like uncleanness. They don't associate with them. That's probably what Moses grew up with, and now he's out amongst the sheep. So also Moses is going to learn how to survive in the wilderness in the, the desert. And this knowledge will be invaluable when he leads the children of Israel out, because that's where they're going to spend the next 40 years. Not also in the text. He flees to Midian. Midian. And, verse 16, Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. I hope you are going, ah, a well. We've been at wells before, have we not? Have we not encountered wells throughout the book of Genesis? Was it not Abraham's servant who went back to the place where he had come from, and he comes to the well, 
and he makes a, a prayer to God, Lord, would you bless me? And he, the, the, his prayer is answered as Rebecca comes out, and Rebecca's the one that God has provided to be Isaac's wife. And then later, later, Isaac's son Jacob, he will go back to that same well, and he'll meet Rachel. Wells play a significant role. We re- reminded ourselves when not so long ago we were in John 4, and there's another man who meets a woman at the well, Jesus. It was necessary for him to go to Samaria, and he goes to the well at Sychar, and he meets a woman who then he brings into the church part of his bride. And here, what do you think might happen at this well? If you're thinking, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's what's going to happen here. So he's at the well. He's there, and he has an encounter as well, an encounter with a woman. Notice the text goes on. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water, and they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And then it's like there's an explanation. Then the shepherds came, they drove them away. So they've come, they brought their father's sheep to water them, but they're always hindered by the other shepherds, men who come. They drive the women away. They're oppressing the women, preventing them from watering their father's flocks. Apparently Jethro rule, the priest of Midian does not have daughters, I mean sons, so his daughters are attending to him. So in verse 17 we find that Moses stood up for them and he helped them and he watered their flock. Drawing water to water flocks was difficult. You had to draw from the depth of the well with a rope and a bucket. There would be troughs there provided so that they could be filled to water the flocks. Remember, this is what Rachel did. Um, no, it was what Rebecca did for Abraham's servant and offered to water his camels as well. They, it, was, it was some time. And now we find Abraham, I mean, uh, we find Moses watering, doing the labor of watering this man's sheep. Moses again sees oppression, and he rises up to put to stop the oppression against the women, a very honorable and a just thing for him to do. But notice there's no blood on the ground. Moses is regulated. He, he's not a wild in his rage, and yet he uses his strength to protect these women and provide for them and their father. Moses saves the women. You notice something there? You see a foreshadowing of Moses' ultimate call, rescuing those who are oppressed. Moses, a deliverer. Remember, the first sermon on his birth was a Savior is born. And we see Moses already, though not for the right reasons or not for the ultimate reason, but honoring God, delivering these women, he saves them and delivers them. So the women, they go home. And notice the way the text reads. They get home a lot earlier. Isn't that clear in the text? Verse 18, And when they came to rule their father, he said, How is it that you have come so soon today? You know what that indicates? That there's been this pattern. They take the sheep to water them. The shepherds come in and interfere. They have to wait until those shepherds water their flocks and leave. And then they can water their father's flocks and they come back. It didn't happen that way this day. They've come back much sooner. Rules noticed it. They've come back much earlier. And he says, How is it that you've come so soon today. And so then they explained. They said to him, an Egyptian delivered us from the hands of the shepherds. That tells us something about how Moses looks at this point. He's grown up 
in Pharaoh's household. Apparently, he wore the clothing of Pharaoh's household. You know, they tended to shave their head, all these things that when they looked at the man, they had no idea he was a Hebrew, if they even knew what a Hebrew was. But they said he sure looked like an Egyptian. They called him an Egyptian. And he intervened and delivered us. An Egyptian has delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. The word, the verb deliver there is the one that will be used throughout the book of Exodus over and over when it speaks of God delivering his people. You see the foreshadowing of the role that Moses will play. He delivered the women and he cared for them. Now, what is it that rule says? It's an Egyptian has delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. He also drew enough water for us to water the flock. And so he said to his daughters, is this not the way it should be? So where is he? Where's this Egyptian? He's been so kind. Where, where is he? And why is it that you've left the man? He's probably incredulous. Like, he's been so kind. He's shown us great favor, not only to you, but to my flock, to my household. He's shown me favor. He's shown me kindness. Uh, where is he? And then he tells him, call him that he may eat bread. Go fetch him and bring him that we might feast together with him. And so it is that the invitation is extended. In verse 21, the invitation to come to a meal. The next verse we find out that invitation was for a long time. Then Moses was content to live with the man. Certainly it's implied that rule, invite him to come. Come live with us. And then he goes beyond that. And he gave Zipporah, his daughter, to Moses. So we've had the well, and now we have a wedding. And obviously Moses agreed. He's welcome. He's grateful for the gift of a wife. Here he is, 40 years old. He's not had a wife. Pharaoh's never offered him a wife. And here this man, the priest of Midian, gives him Zipporah as his wife. And then God blesses. Remember who this is. He's a murderer on the run. He's had mercy. Someone else hasn't rose and risen up and struck him down. God has now provided for Moses a wife, and then he provides a child. Verse 22. Then Moses was content to live with a man, and he gave Zipporah, to his daughter, Zipporah his daughter to Moses, and she bore him a son. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. We've already seen that many times names are given because of significant. Gershon means foreigner. And so he says, because I've been a foreigner in a foreign land, I'm going to name my son Gershon that I'll remember forever. When I see this child, think of his name, I'll remember that I once was a foreigner. But I think Moses really intends to also remember God's provision through rule and his household and a wife, all these things that God blesses him with. Do you remember the title that I gave for this sermon, God's mercy, or this particular point, God's mercy and provision. You see the mercy of God? Brothers and sisters in Christ, can you relate to this text? Are there times when you have sinned and you know consequences have come and yet God is merciful? You know, consequences might come. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. But how often have the consequences not been to the degree of what we deserve? God is wise. Uh, God is merciful. God is measured. He knows what is best for his people. You see that mercy that God has shown Moses. He led him out across a vast wilderness into the land of Midian. He didn't just leave him anywhere. He brings him to a well. He brings him there at some time when these shepherdesses come, and he's able to protect them and help them. 
And then he's been brought into a household. He's found hospitality and rules household. He's been fed. He's been given a bed. He's been given a wife. And God blesses him with a child. Is that not something we as Christians can relate to? Is it not our testimony? God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve. God has been merciful because someone else has borne the penalty for our sins. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the one who was promised in Moses' days, and indeed the one that Moses will point to. Moses, at this point, has entered into the school of Christ. He will now be these 40 years in the wilderness. Do you remember that Saul, who we know later is the Apostle Paul, that after his conversion, the Holy Spirit led him into a wilderness for three years? And there he is in the school of Christ, preparing him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. One day Moses will lead. Notice the language I use here. One day Moses will lead a stubborn. That's like big font, all caps, a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And he's being shown mercy, that he would remember mercy as he leads those people. Moses is not ready to do that yet, but in time he will be. And there will be a time when these stubborn and stiff-necked people, when Moses is up on Mount Sinai and God's given the law, they will demand of Aaron, Moses' brother, to, to give them a God. And Moses will, I mean, Aaron will make a golden calf and said, here's the God that's brought you out of the land of Egypt. When God speaks to Moses about it, he says, get out of my way. I'm going to destroy these people, and from you I will raise up. A nation. And what does Moses do? He pleads with a God who he knows is a God of mercy. He intercedes on their behalf. And you see Moses in that prayer as a Christ type. He says, strike me, but spare them. Do not do this. You see that Moses will grow. We're going we're gonna to encounter all this. We're going to see how Moses, a murderer, will become an instrument in God's hand, just like David, the murderer. The man Saul that we referred to who was a murderer, putting to death the saints of that first century who God will convert in his mercy and then call as an apostle in his grace, an apostle to the Gentiles. My dear friends, there is hope for all us sinners. There is hope for sinners. Surely we can say, yeah, I've made a big mess of my life. You might be saying even right now, my life is a mess. My sins are massive. Is there any hope for me? Look at the life of Moses. God showed him mercy. God is the God of mercy. And he abounds in grace. Run to him. Flee to Christ. For he has made provision in his son. God has made a provision in the son of God, the savior of sinners. And his promise is, as we saw back in Romans, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thirdly, we see, remember our first point? Moses looked. He looked at the oppression. Now we're going to see that God looked. These last four verses, three verses, 23, 4, and 5. God's not been mentioned thus far in this chapter. Have you noticed that? But has he been present Yes, he's been at work. God's been there all along, ever faithful to his covenant people. God saw what was going on too. In fact, God saw the whole matter and not just one display of oppression as Moses had. God saw the whole of Israel. 
Moses records this reality at the end of this chapter. Look at verse 23. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of their bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. What do we learn? First, we see that time has continued to flow. Time goes on. The Pharaoh was, who was there, who was the Pharaoh, was the king of Egypt at the time Moses fled, he dies, as all men do. Remember in Genesis, so-and-so, we got so-and-so, and he died, and he died, and he died. And even so, this Pharaoh, as powerful as he thought he was, he could not preserve his own life. In the course of time, he died, even as we all shall also. The Pharaoh and the, the suffering of Israel is great. They are groaning. They're groaning, they're crying out. And then their cry came up to God because of their bondage. The cry, the word that's used here in the original, it's, it's, it's not just, Wah! it's a cry for help. Help, Lord. Oh, God, look and see. God, come down and deliver. The, the groaning speaks of the deep misery of the people. Israel had not forgotten who they were. Are they walking in all the ways of righteousness? No, but they have not forgotten they are the people of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefather, who made a promise to them, specifically the promise that we heard about last week with the baptism. God promised Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your children after you in their generation. This is the promise. This is the confidence that these people have to the God of covenant, of the covenant. We are your people, O God. Look upon our oppression. Look upon the hardship that's upon us. Help, Lord. And God heard. God heard. And then we're told four ways in which God responded. He heard, he remembered, he looked upon, and he knew. Your translation may render that fourth one differently, but it's the idea of knowing Israel. So see, God heard. He hears their cries. Isn't that remarkable? God does not have a body like men. God doesn't have an ear. And yet God hears. God sees. He hears and knows all things. In the nature of a prayer to God offered in faith, God hears. Now this is some time before they're going to be delivered. They're going to have to wait. But God has heard. And God is carrying out his plan. As a matter of fact, he's got his man who he's going to use. And in the deserts of Midian, he's preparing him because he's heard. He's preparing Moses. And in time, he'll bring him back. And God remembered. What did God remember? He remembered Abraham, who was God's friend. He remembered Isaac and Jacob. He remembered the work he had done in these men. He remembered the covenant above all. He is the covenant-making God. And he is the God who keeps the covenant even when we are faithless. God promises and God keeps his promises. He remembers the covenant. God will act. Just as God had done with Noah, we're told there that as Noah was in the ark, God remembered Noah. Same word. He remembered. He remembered that he was going to preserve him. He stops the rain, the waters dry up, and the ark lands, and he brings out Noah, and he delivers the people back onto the land along with the animals because God remembered, and he did as he has promised. God never forgets his covenant promises. Do you belong to Jesus, and does Jesus belong to you? Has he given you a new heart? Has he redeemed you with his blood? 
Has he by his spirit granted you faith to look unto him for salvation? And has God made promises to you that in the day of judgment, the Christ from the great white throne will say, Blessed are you, child of God, enter into the rest prepared for you. Is that your confidence? It should be. God remembers his covenant. He has promised to all those who are in Christ Jesus in that day of wrath, you'll be perfectly blessed. You will be acquitted because of Christ. The covenant ultimately with Christ, he remembers and he delivers. Christian, maybe you've had a a bad spell. You've been in rebellion against God, sinning again and again. God keeps covenant with you. His promise is still, if you confess your sins, that indeed he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Draw near to him, James 4. Draw near to him. And what is his promise? He will draw near to you. Resist the devil. And what is his promise? He will flee from you. So God also looked, and Moses said, verse 25, And God looked upon the children of Israel. God's looking on them is very different than Moses. What did Moses see when he went out and looked? He saw what was right before his eyes. He saw these two men. He saw the one striving with the other. The next day he sees two Hebrews striving. That's what Moses sees. That's all that Moses can see. But God looks and he sees all with a perfect scene. He understands with an infinite wisdom. He sees the distress, not only the bodies of his people, but the, the souls, uh, the, the constant day-by-day oppression that is upon them. He sees all of that. And God sees the crushed spirit of his people. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're oppressed by sin, or perhaps some other person, God sees. He sees perfectly. Look to him. And finally, fourthly, God knew. The King James says, and God acknowledged them. The word that's used here is it's the intimate knowing. It's used in other places for a man to know his wife. God knew Moses this way. He knew who Moses was. He knew what his character was. He knew the work that he was going to do in Moses. He, he saw Moses as Moses was, even as he saw the nation of Israel as they were. And indeed, we'll see what they are as we make our way through the Exodus. God knew that. He knew them intimately. He knew them perfectly. This knowing that is described here, it's what David celebrates in Psalm 139. Just just a couple of verses from that psalm. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend the path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. That's how God knows his people. David goes on then to celebrate in that psalm that that there's no place that he can go in the vastness of all the expanse of creation, but that God knows him even to the ends of the earth, even to the ends of creation. God is the one true and living God who knows all things, who sees all things. We live in that Latin phrase, Coram Deo. We live before the face of God. When we're tempted to sin, let that reality 
stir us to turn to the Holy Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh and live. Let that knowledge that we live before the face of God when we have sin convict us that we would flee to the one who has saved us. And let that knowledge that we live before the face of God encourage us when we are suffering. God sees. He knows. God is also the one who accomplishes all his holy will and all the vastness of creation. Yes, even right now, he knows your life. He knows you intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. But we conclude with this. I want to conclude with consideration. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, we see the God-man walk amongst the sons of Adam. We, he saw the suffering and oppression all around him, but he never struck out with injustice. Yes, he went to the temple twice and cleansed it, but he was always just in his dealings. He was not a man of anger and wrath. He was not looking to his strength as a man to deliver his people because their, their deliverance needed something far greater. He knew man's greatest trouble was sin, and he came to destroy sin, death, and the grave to the glory of God his Father. He came to bring deliverance from the worst oppression of all. And that meant that he had to suffer. He suffered at the hands of evil men. And he rested in the knowledge that he was doing the will of his father. Moses is going to learn to do the will of God. Jesus always did the will of God. He saw what his father was doing and he did it. He heard what his father was saying, and he said it to the people. Always was he faithful. And even when it meant that it was time to go to the cross, he was silent as a sheep before the shears. He opened not his mouth. He submitted to his father. He's the king of glory. He could have called 10,000 angels to come down and strike a blow upon the face of the earth, but he went. Why? He'd made a covenant with a father to deliver his people from the bondage of sin. So he was meek and lowly as he went forth to deliver. But there's a day coming when he will come with wrath. And all those who are not found in him by faith, they will know the wrath and the justice of God for all eternity. This is the hope and the promise of God to his people. I want to apply this one more way. I imagine that you all are aware in some degree or another, of the growing persecution that's happening to the church in our land. When I was a boy or a young adult, you know, I heard of persecution of the people of God in other places. It's happening here. The administration in Washington, D.C., after the shooting of nine children in Covenant Day School, a Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, what was their focus? The first... It was upon ice cream, suffering, and no regard for the loss of life, no regard for the hurting of those people. Why? They're Christians. We know if they had been Muslims, they outrage, but they were Christians. And indeed, they, indeed what they did is they turned and, and treated the woman who had committed the murderous act as some sort of victim to be celebrated. My friends, we are under persecution. These are just but the gathering clouds that are coming our way. And I could give you many other examples. We will know what it is to suffer for Jesus' sake. I don't say that to alarm you or to frighten you. But we must remember, 
we live before the face of God. And we dare not be like Moses and take matters into our own hand. What, what would the arm of flesh do for us? We look to our God. We rest in him. It is our responsibility to cry out to God. Let our groanings be heard by the Almighty who dwells upon high. Let us come before him with our prayers and petitions. Let us cry, how long, O Lord? Even as the persecuted, even the martyred saints around the throne, how long, O God, before you vindicate us? And we must be faithful. We must be Christ-like. We must be gentle. Certainly there's a place and a time for the preservation of life even as our own constitution in this land says. But even in that, we must look to God. And let us, as Moses will see him do, let us learn in the school of Christ as we suffer. We sang just a little bit ago, the church is one foundation. We sang about how the flames which the Lord appoints, they're not to consume us. They're to burn away the dross. That's what Christ does with suffering. And you hear the echoes of Joseph's words. You, they, the world, the flesh, the devil, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God uses suffering for the good of his people, for the glory of Christ who preserves and upholds us, but also that we would be further sanctified. And so we wait on the Lord as we cry out to him. God always remembers his covenant with his people. And he knows us intimately. And in the course of time, God will arise. Even as Matthew 16 says, Jesus promises, I will build my church. And the very gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for lessons from the life of Moses. We thank you for the, the integrity and the presentation, the clarity about who this man was as you begin working with him to use him. Lord, as we continue to walk through these chapters and see Moses grow, Lord, teach us that we, in our day, would learn to be faithful in your house, on your earth, before your face. In the strength of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.